Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Salve. Ciao. Buongiorno. Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies... Or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics and language... We are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches and methods of study will differ and what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University, and you're here with the Italian Studies podcast for the New Books Network. I am thrilled and delighted to be joined today by Gary Milligan, who'll be discussing his new book, Moral Combat, Women, Gender, and War in Italian Renaissance Literature, published by the University of Toronto Press. Gary, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Let me just introduce you for our listeners. Gary Milligan is Professor of Italian and Director of Honors Programs at the College of Staten Island at Sydney University of New York. He's also on the Faculty of Comparative Literature at the CUNY Grad Center. At the College of Staten Island, he has served as Interim Dean of the Humanities and Social Sciences and Chair of the Department of World Languages and Literatures. Gary Milligan's research focuses broadly on gendered identity in Italian Renaissance literature, and he has written articles on such diverse topics as cross-dressing in 16th century comedy, the rhetorical use of effeminacy, and the heroines of the sacred poems of Lucrezia Tornabuoni. With Jane Tylus, he co-edited The Poetics of Masculinity in Early Modern Italy and Spain, and that's from 2010. In 2007-2008, he received a fellowship at Harvard's Villa Itatti, the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies, and it was here that he began his work on his recent book. Moral Combat was published earlier this year by the University of Toronto Press and won honorable mention from the Modern Language Association for the Scaglione Prize, for Best Manuscript in Italian Studies. Gary, congratulations and welcome. Thank you. Uh, Before beginning, I'd just like to give listeners a sense of the book and its structure, if I might. Um, Moral Combat considers how texts of varied types, both literary and historical, fashion a discursive construct of gender in warfare. For example, how are women depicted in relation to warfare? Are they non-combatant innocents protected by male warriors? If this is not the case, how does the representation of the woman warrior illuminate men and masculinity in the Italian Renaissance? How are gender roles rewritten, challenged, and reaffirmed in the texts under consideration? This is Gary Milligan's focus in moral combat across six chapters and a conclusion. The book begins with an investigation in chapter one of the philosophical history of the armed woman. And I should mention that this resonates really beautifully with the book jacket illustration for the cloth edition, in which we have an oil painting by Tintoretto from 1578 and on display in Venice's Palazzo Ducale. And it depicts Minerva repelling Mars. 
And this gives some indication of the long arc out of which the warring woman in the Renaissance emerges. Chapter two of Moral Combat um, speaks about the way that the armed woman is represented in epic chivalric poetry. The following chapter explores the lives of four actual historical figures demanding warrior masculinity. These are Catherine of Siena, Laura Terracina, Chiara Matriani, and Isabella Cervoni. Chapter four lays out Christian and classical models of warring women. And this is followed in chapter five by the noble warring woman and chapter six, warring queens. Uh, so, um, uh, Gary, I was hoping that we might begin with a brief description of the historical period that you're considering, and perhaps especially the Italian wars of 149, between 1494 and 1559, since this... Uh, inscribes the period uh, that is your focus in moral combat. Well, sure. And thank you for the introduction. It's nice to hear the book talked about by other people. I get to hear how they see it. Um, so the the historical period is pretty long. It's, it's a long durée that goes you know, from Plato in some ways to the 1600s. But of course, the book focuses really on the 1350 to 1600. And um, you I've used the word Renaissance in the title, even though there's a long discussion about whether we can even use the word Renaissance anymore. But it's the period that most people know about Italy, um, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and of course, Machiavelli, and all three at least pop their heads up somewhere in the book. And historically, why this is interesting in terms of women in war, women combatants would be that if you look at the political situation in Italy at the time, in the, in the 15th century, it's a, uh, Italy's, a, as we know, a collection of city-states, some are republics, and some are courts. But as we move in from the 15th century into the 16th century, these city-states go, go at war, and we see, in some ways, a, um, a centralization of bureaucracies. And particularly, like you said, the Italian wars, uh, as they're called, um, really begin in 1494 when France invades into the peninsula. And by the way, France is, the King of France is invited in by some of the Italians, by particularly the Duke of Milan. Uh, Milan. But at that point, what you, if you think of this on sort of a larger perspective, you see from 1494 to 1559, France and the Habsburg Empire battling with Italy as a battleground and uh, the end result being an overturning of sovereignty of all these little states into really Italy's invasion and occupation for the next 300 years by Northern powers. And so I, I really see um, this shift, not just political and military shift, as one that also is in, internalized by all of it, all of the Italians. Uh, I liken in 1527, when Rome is sacked and no one ever believed this would happen, I liken that with my students to 9-11, how there's, it's not just the act of what happened, it's also the, the notion that this could never happen here. And I, I think that this is uh, really integral into why we see uh, Italy perceiving itself as changed somehow. And uh, that's going to get blamed on 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 a lot of um People, particularly men, and the way the fact that they were unable to to stop this. So, um, anyway, that's the political background in, in, in into this sort of scenario that I've set up with the women in war. Uh, thanks, and in some ways that gets at my next question, which would be, you know, why now, or rather, why then? Uh, what is it uh, in your view? Why are the texts in this period you focus on? so interested in the armed woman, you know, in this particular yeah, period? You know, it, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, it's the one that I'm going to sort of be, <laughs> I'm going to give that cop-out answer of, well, we don't know. And it depends, but so let, just to back up a little bit, the first, let me say that everyone who reads Italian literature from the 16th century has at least noticed that there are main characters in the classics, in the in the bestsellers of the period, that are women warriors. So that's that's not gone unnoticed, um, and it becomes it's a sort of proliferation of these women warriors that start. If you think about Orlando Furioso by Ariosto, I mean he of course doesn't start. Uh, he's not the first person to write a character who's a woman warrior, but it's the success of his poem that then 
you know, leads to many copycats and so forth that really um, sort of you could characterize the 16th century as having a lot of, of, of armed women warriors in their poetry. But what hasn't really been discussed before was that there were also lots of debates about whether women should be armed or at least should participate in combat. And uh, in fact, I, I didn't realize that this was, and I've studied the woman question of the Italian Renaissance for a long time, but it's, it's because these debates are embedded in larger discussions of the place of women, whether they should be educated, whether they should um, be able to have certain professions, whether they should rule, etc. And so embedded in all of these discussions of women's what's often called the worth of women or women's rights, we would say now, uh, is this question of whether women should also be able to go to war. And so the question of why is probably the hardest question. And it's the one that I think is maybe most interesting, but also the one that can lead us down some tricky paths. So I will say that there are people who have suggested that the reason that we see women warriors in the epic poems is because we also see during this time strong women rulers from principalities. There have also been people who have reversed that, who say that the reason that we see, and this is an interesting one to me, that the reason that some women felt that they could be rulers is that they read about them in literature. And um, I'm going to add, in my analysis, another reason that I think has maybe gone sort of under the radar. And that would be that when Italy is invaded and occupied, and what we see is men becoming blamed, continually blamed for effeminate men, typically for the the loss of for military defeat, for political defeat. You would say the loss of sovereignty, however you want to couch it. That that allows a space for something very fascinating, which is uh, this notion that while effeminate men were losing women were being praised for their military success. And it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. Like if you praise a, milita- um, a successful milita- a militant woman, it allows you as an author to also say, and this is how men have failed. And so in some ways, I think that might be one of the reasons, at least this is what I'm suggesting, one of the reasons that this is happening in this moment uh, in the 16th century you know, it, it's fascinating because it, it sort of goes away. I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'm not a specialist in 17th and 18th and 19th century uh, Italian literature, but certainly there's not the same uh, interest in, at least in authors, of um, writing about armed women. And, you know, I'd love for someone to, to tell me about that because I'm not sure, but, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So that I do think there's a special moment going on in the 16th century. Right. So, and, and that's the focus of moral combat. Um, moral combat, mortal combat. <laughs> why, why moral combat? Is it because women are the repositories of morality? Uh, what, what, what's going on with, with that play of words in your title? Yeah. So, um, the actual reason that it's moral combat is, is, is yes, that we have a notion that women are the repository of morality, which I think is, um, certainly something that could be challenged. But I, I believe that, um, the, for me, the more interesting uh, conversation is that what happens with morality and war is that generally as men are labeled the militant sex, they are also considered the sex that is, has to defend, uh, whether that be defend. Uh, they're not only attacking, they're also defending, correct? So they're, they're defending home, they're defending homeland, and they're defending women, particularly the women and children. And so if there's a notion that men must fight and women can fight, as a choice, then there's a moral obligation for men to fight. And when men don't fight, then they are, have somehow been derelict in their duties. And this is when we actually see the women fighting. Um, or at least, excuse me, this is when we see women as described as fighting. I don't think that that's, that this is necessarily, any of this is necessarily true, but I, I'm here. I'm, you know, really careful. I'm discussing how 
war is framed in in narrative. But um, yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, you know that that painting you talk about on the cover is actually it's Minerva. You know, she's 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 pushing Mars away, but she's protecting two um, other women, and they're called Peace and Prosperity. So you know, your question is right on to ask about the women as the as the repository of morality. I mean, that is definitely how women have been framed, you know, forever. Uh, indeed. And, you know, <clears throat> as a non-specialist of 16th century Italy, though, someone who has has training in it, um, y- you and I have talked about you know, the fascinating character of um, Caterina Sforza. And mm. I really want to go to that episode of um, of Caterina. Uh, but I also want to observe um, and and forecast a question that I'm interested in, which is in some respects, um, women who are noble, whether they be poetically uh, represented in the epic chivalric poems, um, uh, or they were actual figures like Caterina, or like for that matter, um, Elizabeth, I think, if we're if we wanted to be comparative, mm-hmm. you know, noble women taking up the necessity of defending their principality or their duchy. That's not so surprising. And I know, you know, your book also focuses on women who are not noble. So I definitely want to get to that. But first, I can't resist. I have to go to uh, I have to go to the episode of um, of Caterina. Oh, OK, so. um well, there's a lot there that, you know, it's, it's really, first of all, it's really fascinating the way that class plays into, into this question. And of course it did in warfare with men too, but you're right. Noble women. And of course, a noble woman leader than defending her, her homeland. You might not think it unusual, but boy, Katarina is Katarina Sforza is, is, um, is really going to shine in terms of being different from the other, I guess the other viragos, if you will. So, Caterina Sforza, I would guess, is Italy's most famous virago. So if I, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you mentioned you're not um, a specialist in the 16th century, but or and she, of course she's 15th century, but you, you of course, would have heard of Caterina Sforza. And that would probably be the one woman, if someone did know a uh, woman in war from Italy's past, that would be the one who they would know. And I think the reason is, is because Machiavelli makes her famous. Um, I think that that's probably more the reason than uh, what what she may or may not have done. But Caterina Sforza, so you know, just as a real quick refresher, is really interesting. She's a, a countess. She's ma- uh, married into this. Uh, she's a Sforza, so she's related to the most. Uh, she's the, the niece of the Duke of Milan, one of the most powerful families in Italy. She's married to a Riario, and she, you know. In her first letter, as we see, she's really this very demure, very uh, soft-spoken, if you will, it seems, um, Renaissance 15th century woman. She's also quite young. But when I think she's about 25, excuse me, 21. Um, she and her husband are very concerned about the new papal uh, conclave because the pope has died. They're going to be electing a new pope. And her husband's away. And it seems from Chronicles that she goes into, um, I believe it's Castel Sant'Angelo and shoot, you know, faces the canons at the Vatican to make sure that the cardinals vote the right way. So already we see, you know, some, some hint of this sort of militant side of Catherine or that she's in, at least bold and, and willing to do uh, acts that are maybe not expected of the average 15th century woman, even noble woman. But it's really, really going to be later on when she's 25 years old uh, or in, in 1488. Um, and I'm sorry, I think she's 22. I'm not getting her, her 25. All right. I'm getting her ages wrong. So I can't, I have a problem with writing a book over 10 years as you forget all the dates, but in 1488, um, I thought that was just me that that happened. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's horrible because I don't write on, you know, I wish I just wrote on Dante. I would at least have one, one set of dates, but I've got so many dates. Um, not that Dante's easy. That's not what I meant by that. Just knowing all these dates. Uh, in 1488, Catherine Sforza's husband is killed by a con- in a conspiracy, and she and her husband, she and her children, rather, and I believe her in-laws, they're taken captive. And the problem is the conspirators can't really take control of the city of Forli without taking control of the fortress. And at that point, Catherine Sforza convinces them to let her go into the fortress and that she'll 
talk the Castellan into handing it back over to the conspirators. So she goes, um, they, they let her go. And the reason they let her go is because they've kept her children hostage. And she does go inside the fortress. And what we know historically is that she succeeds in not handing over the fortress, but instead in convincing her uncle to send troops down and to, um, to reconquer the town. What Machiavelli says she does, and this is, of course, Machiavelli's take, is that she goes to this top of the fortress wall, addresses the captives, the captors who have her children in front of her, and um, she tells them to go ahead and they can do whatever they want with her children because she has the means to make more. And in doing this, she raises her skirt and points to her genitals. So it's a pretty... Uh, amazing scene. And of course, it's the one that, that gets repeated on, on the Borges, right? If you watch Showtime. So sure, of course. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's the one that my students, um, you know, really focus on. And they made a website of Katarina Sports. And of course, they, that's the scene that they want to put as the video on the front. Um, and understandably, because it's so shocking. How could you not want to do that? I mean, that's the, the the public display, if indeed that happened, right? The thing that's so shocking is it is the, it, it's a double in your face, you know, the flashing of the genitals of a noble woman, right? right who is saying, you think that I'm going to need to defend my children. And that's the way that you, that you, that's the leverage that you have over me. And not only do you not have that leverage, but I can always make more. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's such a, a, a great uh, moment for Machiavelli because he's able to use it um, in all kinds of different political ways, right? He's able to say, this is, again, the strength of women and, and men aren't being strong like these women are. But he's also able, you know, anyway, he's able to discuss politics and power through that gesture. I, you know, and, and it's, it's had, a, there's been a lot of legs to this gesture because, um, as you know, a lot of people, you know, Gramsci mentions this. So the, there's a lot of people who throughout Italian history will point back to Caterina Sforza, hence her fame. What's, what's really interesting, though, for, for um, me is that you'll see in her recorded speech. So this, we, unfortunately, these are not her letters, but these are how men typically talk about her. They, it's not just this gesture. I mean, she, she has lots of little quips that she, she sort of becomes this um, great figure for the really pithy remark that's going to slam men. And it's, it's almost always gendered. And I find her really fascinating because we just don't know who or what she really is. Uh, we do know that she's fairly impressive um, anyway. Her actions are, are quite impressive beyond that event. What, what happens in... Unfortunately for her, I mean, she's she's got a pretty <laughs> she has a pretty uh, tumultuous life, or at least let's say interesting at the least. In um, in fifteen in fourteen ninety nine, when um, she does regain the city as as, as in fourteen eighty eight, but in fourteen ninety nine, unfortunately, the pope, a different pope, Alexander VI, sends his son Cesare Borgia to Forli, and at this point, he sieges her fortress, and he's able to capture her, and. I actually find this moment almost more interesting narratively because what happens in this moment is we see lots of writers discussing how here's this bold, um, militant, combatant, you know, impressive woman who is surrounded by weak men. And it's, it's mentioned in text after text how the people come expecting a fight but instead, they 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 don't they don't see one, and, and only Caterina Sforza is is the fighter, and you know, and it's really unfair that she's surrounded by these. For me, as a as a first, certainly writing about armed women and masculinity, that was such an exciting moment to see. I didn't realize I would find it because I I didn't know so much about that moment, and it's really fascinating to see. Um, really, I think that hones in on this notion of moral combat that the the men weren't up to the task, and and only a, and only a woman was. Right. So let me, let's stay with that for a second. Um, because Caterina has been exemplary, not just for Machiavelli or perhaps by way of Machiavelli, 
reaches down across the centuries. Uh, you and I have talked about the way that, um, for example, the early 20th century, you know, I discussed about Barbara Spackman's book in Fascist, Fascist Virilities, where um, the example of Caterina is then redeployed by Gadda in Eros in Eros Priapo, and also stands for a certain kind of um, combative, uh, antagonistic, aggressive masculinity in uh, a nucleus of texts that will become really important and figures, right? Like D'Annunzio and um, uh, and Mussolini, right? At the beginning of the 20th century. So I just wanted to say that that um, example or that that legend of Caterina really reaches uh, across the centuries uh, to tell us something in a variety of historical moments that are really particular and important for Italy. Um, it makes me want to ask the question about the exemplarity of these women warriors uh, who, for whom taking up arms um, for whom is that an example uh, in the discursive creation of these women warriors um, who's reading them and, uh, and what sorts of examples are they drawing for, uh, from them? So, um, you know, it's a great question. I, and I've thought I had to struggle with this quite a lot. Uh, again, because I think that the opinions about exemplarity, uh, they, that people are very, um, they have strong opinions about this. And I think they're very impassioned about what they, what they believe here. But I, I want to back up just a real little small bit here to say, you know, I'm, I'm looking at different types of, different genres, different types of texts. And the book, the way it's structured, like you said in the introduction, the last three chapters are really dedicated to the biographies of historical women. So those verses, let's say an epic poem, right? So those biographies always begin, and they're very long. Some of them are 900 to you know 1,000 pages. Some of them will have... Uh, I've read, I don't know, thousands of <laughs> biographies of women. And they begin almost always with a preface that tells the reader how to read it and how to imitate or emulate what they're reading. So, of course, we know that this is not necessarily how, how it's even meant to happen or how it did happen. But they tell us what they want uh, the reader to, to, to get from it. And sometimes, like in Boccaccio, when he writes on famous women, he, he tells his female readers to look through this, through all these examples of women and to, as you would choose a rose, there's some, there are thorns and you don't choose those. You would choose the ones with the roses because he's also going to use some negative examples. As we go on, uh, it doesn't seem to, there's not, we lose the negative examples in these collections of women, but you'll still see uh, writers saying, women who are reading these books, please notice you know, the women of the past, use them as inspiration and choose according to your class. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, the, another book that I look at, that these are the three principal ones I'm looking at. Um, the, the third one will say to the women, woman, it's dedicated to one particular woman reader, a princess. And he says, you know, look at the women of your past lineage, those who you're related to, and also those from Tuscany where you now live. So. There was, there was at least on the surface an idea that women readers would imitate what they were reading. Uh, and I say the word reader here very loosely because, you know, literacy in the Renaissance is a long debated topic, but certainly people could, had access to books beyond just reading. You could hear it read to you, right? So the, the notion that a woman would read about um, Katerina Sforza and then imitate her is probably unlikely because Katerina Sforza is going to carry this baggage of some sort of uh, uh, indecorum. She's indecorous, right? Because of the whole, because of the reputation of lifting her skirt and Machiavelli's take on her. Every, every text after Machiavelli is going to always carry that with it. So she might not be the one to imitate. And so you might have to look at other examples. I think some of the coolest I mentioned in the book, I don't know if you noticed this as well, but some of the coolest um, examples of exemplarity would be that mothers would name their daughters after the uh, after the heroic viragos of Ariosto. So your daughters, Marfisa or Bradamante. I, I love that. 
Um, you still have Marfisas around, don't you? There are, yeah, I guess there are true, still yeah. Marfisas, actually. Bradamante a little less, but I haven't, I haven't never met a Bradamante, but a Marfisa I have, actually. No, you're right. I mean, I, most of my friends have cats named the name Marfisa or Bradamante, but sure, you could, there are some Marfisas in Italy. But, you know, the, re, in, the reality is, and we know this, right, that no matter how much women were reading these texts and how much maybe they were inspired by them, there's not ever a significant shift in in the number of women that are in combat versus men. I mean, the, the it's, it's, it's going to be an insignificant percentage change. I'm not a historian, so that actually wasn't the question I was looking for, but I was interested in how at least it was being framed as, as, as an exemplarity. It's a hard word for me. Um, one one author, uh, I mean, he's somewhat satirical about this, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but one author, uh, Hortensio Lando, states that he's really concerned because all these women are now running around on horseback um, with Ariosto, he says, in their hands, and they're reading the, the war parts. So he, and he, the, this is in a text that's written to men to wake up. It's actually, you know, basically men need to wake up and see that women are taking over the world. So, um, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, but I do think there's at least a fear that women will imitate what they're reading and that they will start going to war and ruling. Um, and you know, that's interesting. (laughs) You know, it, it is really interesting. And at the same time, I'm wondering if the, if the examples of the armed woman and the woman warrior serve as anti-examples for men, that is to say, are, did you, I, one of your, one of your research uh, fields is ma- um, early modern masculinities. And I'm wondering if the, uh, you know, if the viragos are being held up as, you know, look at what you are not, you shameful, effeminate man who fails to take up arms in defense of your, of your city. So I was wondering what sort of evidence you have for that, or have you found any evidence for that, or if you might speak to that? So that's, I mean, I guess that's that's really what I want people to see is that the woman reader isn't the only reader, and just because it's a book of illustrious women, she's certain. Maybe she's not even the primary reader. It probably would be men who we know were had higher literacy rates at the time anyway, but. If the text that is written about every single time there is a woman who goes to war, if every single time there's then a, a, an addendum which says, if I, could, if I were to compare these women to the men of 1599 in X battle, then we would see that these women were so much more courageous than those men, right? So clearly the message is, it, it's two. I mean, it, it's one to praise women, but I think it's just as much, if not even more, to send a message to men that they need to change their behavior. And um, that would mean that the, as you said, like a negative example, it, it, it's sort of interesting to me. There was, uh, when I was doing the research on the classical text, which I have to be honest, I did not know uh, as much. I found, you know, of course there are famous classical texts, particularly by Plutarch about women at war, famous women at war and all the things that they did. What I didn't know was that there were, later books that would then incorporate those stories of women and they were given to male generals, which I also find interesting. And I'm not, I, of course, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on ancient, I'm not a classicist, but I do, I do know that there are at least two examples where uh, c- compendia of, of war strategies and, you know, the famous battles and men who did um, certain acts in war were also accompanied by some examples of women in war as well. And I can only assume that that in some ways was a reminder that again, it's sort of the woman in war always stands as a, because she is the woman who's not meant to be at war. Right. So it stands as a reminder to men that um, if they don't act in a certain way or don't succeed, that, um, that they, there's a threat in some ways of, of women, or it, that's one, one way to look at it, or that they will be now neglecting their duties to protect women. Right. And I, I, I would, um, I don't want to suggest with this next question about the class distinctions that emerge between the figures that you said, I want to suggest that there is, you know, uh, 
um, prototypic class warfare that was that was uh, insurrection that was happening. But there are, I mean, one of the interesting things about your text is that you do uncover um, some women who were not noble women, and right. I was one, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and how you know, what contribution moral combat and your research makes to our understanding of the historiography of the Renaissance with regard to women's agency, um, social, civic engagement, and that sort of thing along the lines of um, taking up arms uh, in defense of your, of your city. Sure. Thank you. Boy, I wish we knew more about non-nobles, <laughs> period. But um, it is fascinating that Okay, so for those people that maybe haven't, I mean, I'm, I don't know, those people who haven't read the epic poetry of the Renaissance, just as a, a really quick statement, every, uh, every knight is noble, um, in, in the, at, least in the, at least in the bestseller classics that we all know. There are some exceptions in the, in the secondary uh, literature, but Bradamante Marfisa are going to be coming from noble families. So that's, those women, knights are noble. But but if if we look at instead the histories, the, the the biographies of women at war, the story's a little different. And what we see is that, for example, in a book of 1547, which is a collection, what it is, is it's a translation of Boccaccio's famous women, which is a collection of really legendary and mythical women. And then the translator adds his about 50 of his own stories. Of, of, the, of, of illustrious women, as he calls them. Those, of those women, only three are not noble, and all three he includes, he makes, he calls them illustrious, and he spends a lot of time describing how they make it in a book of illustrious women. All three are involved in warfare. And what that shows me, two of which are combat, and one was a victim of, uh, of war, but she commits suicide to avoid being captured. But what, anyway, what this shows me is that. A woman has some access to social mobility, possibly through ex exceptional acts during wartime. And social mobility may not mean a change in economic status, but at least, you know, to make it into a book of illustrious women uh, is, is, is difficult at the time, right? Because it's such a classist society. So that was really fascinating. And then if I look at an, an, another iteration of Boccaccio's same book of famous women. This is hard to, so bear with me on this one. It's, again, Boccaccio's book of famous women translated into Italian. It's got those 50 stories that were added in 1547. And now another 106 stories added. It's a very long book uh, of, of uh, again, of illustrious women. If I look at that collection, now I start seeing not just individual women, both noble and non-noble, who are participating in war, but now I actually start seeing collections of citizens, uh, women who were in during sieges, picking up stones and throwing them down, and, and or 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 even sometimes on the offensive, protecting their city, and that is really exciting because we we might have historians might have known this to some extent, or maybe did know this to some extent um, about siege warfare. You there's a, one historian who says, if, if your town is siege, everyone fought, you know, even the dogs, um, but uh, you, everyone fighting, right? You have children, men of every age and so forth. Everyone on some level is having to uh, defend themselves. But the, the notion that a collection of citizens of women would fight and, and do so effectively and then make it into a history book is really exciting because it's not just in a chronicle, it's also in a book that was meant to be widespread and then read as exemplary. And that, to get back to your question about, you know, how do you imitate or emulate something? For me, that is something that it, that women could imitate and emulate because it wouldn't have it wouldn't have put their decorum at, at risk. It, there's no problem with propriety because you're defending your town in a time of crisis, and it does show solidarity among women. I mean, there's all kinds of exciting things about it. So I, I you know, I, I don't, I hope I have contributed enough to make people start looking into this further. I mean, I certainly don't have any, uh, any conclusions about it. Right. Well, um, you know, I think that um, honest scholarship likes to ask questions. It's not a failure of scholarship if it doesn't come up with 
the answer to its own question necessarily. I think that it, um, as, a, as a generous gesture toward other scholars, it's an invitation for other scholars to um, have their in, have their curiosity piqued and um, want to um, send you know paths of inquiry out that way. So you know my curiosity, as I say, as a non-specialist, is absolutely um, piqued. Also because um, you know you mentioned just a little bit ago that uh, people you know, named their children Bradamante and Marfisa, uh, and there are still some Marfisas as we observed. Um, you know that's evidence, I think, also uh, or it resonates at least. Um, with what I think is happening today, I mean, uh, there are children who have been named, for example, Khaleesi uh, after right. Game of Thrones, or perhaps even right. Daenerys. But in fact, um, you know, how do you see the texts that you study in this period resonating with latter day representations of women warriors? And um, I'm thinking of, you know, intensely popular films or screen texts like the Hunger Games or all the superheroes and especially Wonder Woman, uh, Lord of the Rings, which despite its ferocious Oedipal quest that is overlaid uh, in that study, nonetheless, you know, gives us Eowyn, the, the shield maiden of Rohan. Uh, and, you know, 1996 and 1997 offered um, back-to-back two feature films with A-list actresses, uh, Meg Ryan as a combat officer in Courage Under Fire and Demi Moore in uh, the title role of G.I. Jane. And they said at the time, you know, that she was the only one that could get that movie done about a woman in combat. So, uh, you know, all the women in uh, Game of Thrones, Daenerys, Cersei, Brienne, Arya, but also even lesser figures. Um, there's a film that's been making the art house circuit. Uh, I haven't seen it myself, but it's been incredibly well-received um, called Woman at War about Hala, the, the eco-warrior, I think, in, in Iceland. And so, you know, I'd like to ask if you find, you know, from, from your point of view, as we, as we draw up to the 21st century, which is the century in which you concluded this study, you know, do you find that there are substantially different dynamics concerning the exemplarity or the representation of women in war um, from uh, from the period that you study in uh, in early modern in early modern Italy, and if you don't find substantial differences, what might you make of that? Right. Gosh. So um, there's. I think there's a still a divide. Not. I think. I, I, I'm. I'm convinced that there is a divide between the way we represent fictionalized representations of women in war or in let's say wartime versus the, the actual lived experience of women in the military. And, and now, you know, I can speak about Italy and the United States only. I don't, the world's a complex, complex place, but the, um, you know, just in, in 2013 was when the United States lifted a ban on women on the front lines. So in combat zones. So it's not that women weren't in combat zones. We know that some of them were, but they actually weren't able to receive pay because they weren't officially allowed to be there. But nonetheless, it was 2013. So you know, you named a lot of a lot of uh, films and books that come long before then. So I think fictional representations of women in war have always been a little different than what the reality is. And this is what's tricky. So if I if I just stick to What's happening in the discourse of, and boy, I had, I, in, before doing this project, I can say that I never did research on uh, what was really being said in certain circles about whether women should be allowed to fight. And uh, I, I will be happy to leave some of this behind because I've found a lot of the ugliness of our country and a lot of misogyny that, you know, of course, you know, exists out there. But the way that the conversation is framed about women being able to participate in combat the, the prince, if, if we go into elevated discourse, at least that which was circulating around the 2013 lifting of the ban, the conversation was very similar to what was happening in the Renaissance. So what were they focusing on? They were focusing on particularly on maybe three or four things. One would be women's weakness versus men's strength, so physical weakness. The second would be women's um, proclivity. So that women are, women are passive, you know, they're, 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 they're they're not in, inclined to go to war. Let's say they're not inclined to kill. They create life, not end life. And uh, there was a fear that women would be subject to 
sexual assault during war, both, uh, I think both from their, their own cohorts, but also the enemy. And so these are all the, I mean, precisely the same arguments that are raised in the Renaissance about why women should not fight. And so that's very similar. And I don't think that's going to, that really is, is an argument that has somewhat shifted, but you know, it has and has not changed in some ways. What's fascinating is also the way that we look at fictional representations. So the Hunger Games, for example, widely popular, it has a protagonist who is an archer. And what's, what's interesting is that most of the women warriors in Epic are, for a long time, are going to be archers. I mean, this comes from Camilla's being able to be an archer in uh, Virgil's Aeneid. And there's a moment that we see in, um, in fact, in Tasso where, you know, Clorinda complains. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not just an archer. <laughs> and, you know, there's this notion that I can do more than shoot arrows. Uh, and, and in fact, in some of the sort of secondary literature you see, uh, and I say secondary meaning it's just less, less canonical. You'll see the female character saying, um, I don't want to be labeled a woman archer. I'm not just an archer. So there's this notion of, I think that because uh, shooting an arrow still, a, a, a combatant can maintain physical distance from the enemy, just right. as shooting, in the same way with shooting a gun, really, right? right. Whereas a sword w- w- would have required, because there were guns in the 16th century, gunpowder is uh, in Europe, but it's, uh, it, it, in fact, the introduction of gunpowder is a heated debate in the 16th century. But um, there's still lots and lots of hand-to-hand combat. And the notion of a woman carrying a sword, which is heavier, that admittedly, but also just bloodying her hands. I mean, there's sometimes there's even a discussion of whether a woman's hands remain clean or get bloodied or not. Uh, That conversation really puts the question of whether women should be fighting, you know, to the fore. And so I'm wondering, you know, if I look at the, Hunger Games or Brave, the Disney cartoon. She also, by the way, is an archer. You know, I'm wondering, like, are we ready for that? I mean, a woman with a sword, you know, going after enemies. There are, of course, examples of that. Absolutely. But it, it, it isn't always a positive image of women at war when you see that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, if we're, 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 we're seeing a shift, but I'm wondering how long it will take to see, um, you know, not that, not that killing should be a positive image. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm going to come out as a pacifist here, but, and that's, what's difficult about writing about war. Um, but you know, a man killing someone can be seen as positive depending on the context. And the question is if a woman does that with the sword or so forth, uh, especially aggressively on the offensive, not on the defensive, does this, whether it seems positive. Wonder Woman's interesting. I don't know how you feel about Wonder Woman, but I, I love the movie. But I can tell you that the scene, the sort of most famous scene when she's at the trenches and she crosses the trenches, if I remember this correctly, it's because there's stasis and the, and, and the men aren't able to break it. And so in some ways, I, I was thinking to my project and I thought, you know, this is yet another example of the men aren't able to do what, the, what needs to get done. and so. That's why she has to do it, um, which is the argument that I make that, you know, that women only have to go to war when um, when men are are not not actually successfully doing the job. Yeah, that's that's all of this is so useful. And as of course, as modern combat becomes increasingly distant where you could have a technician in another country operating a drone, for example, uh, there's would not be a call. And I don't know if they're calling that combat. I suspect that they are not even though that they are front really on the front lines, albeit uh, virtually and electronically. But that notion of women killing is of course, you know, upsetting of a certain, um, order of nature, uh, as you put it with regard to Katerina Sforza, uh, women are meant to, um, give life, not extinguish it. And just to say that, you know, war is of course, state sanctioned killing or even siege war, as you said, everyone comes out from their, their hidey hole to, uh, to throw stones at your, um, aggressors if it's a siege war. So, um, 
there's a lot there. Um, we are we are drawing to the end of our really fascinating conversation, Gary, about your um, riveting book, Moral Combat, Women, Gender, and War in uh, Italian Renaissance Literature, um, which is available everywhere books are sold and I imagine borrowed. Uh, and so, um, as a as a gesture, as we as we you know shamble toward our conclusion here, I just wanted to ask you what your current research project is. If you could um, sum that up and briefly, and tell us uh, tell us what you're doing right now. Sure, thanks. Well, you know, it's because of this project. I will tell you one of the questions I had was, why is it that men are the militant sex? What what is it about when a boy is born? And, and not a not a girl that uh, he will be then the militant sex. I mean, in our own country, men still have to register for the draft at eighteen. I think people are still shocked about this. That a lot of women don't realize that this still happens. And so that led me to think about uh, masculinity and 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 then write this book, the Moral Combat. And now I'm I'm going really strictly to to think about men, and I'm actually writing about effeminacy, which is this book really points to. So the book is going to be on the appearance of feminacy, of effeminacy. And I, um, you know, I, I am working on it. I've got a whole chapter already about military, you know, militarism because it came from this book, but, uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work I still have to do. Yeah. Right. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, there are so many resonances between, uh, 21st century, um, society, both American and, 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 and Italian, I would, I would wager. Um, and, and the portrait that you give us of armed women and women warring, uh, during the Italian Renaissance. So thank you for your time. And we will look forward to the, to the next installment of your research. Thanks again. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian studies channel on the new books network please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies. And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, criticology. As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian studies hosts. Giancarlo Lombardi. Nicoletta Marini-Maio. And Ellen Nirenberg. All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>